Hi, everyone, and welcome to Becoming Lincoln. Episode 7, The Esteem of My Fellow Man. Shortly after arriving in Illinois in 1830, the Lincoln family went to work in closing about 10 acres of land where Thomas and Sarah had settled, an area Abraham Lincoln later described as, quote, the junction of timberland and prairie. As Dennis Hanks and Augustus Chapman later described it, this was kind of a community party where many men came out to maul trees into jagged rails and erect fences marking Thomas Lincoln's land. Chapman said, quote, The rails to enclose this first ten acres of land were principally made by the neighbors, collecting in and making a frolic of it, and were nearly all made in one day. He went on to add that Abraham, quote, worked at them but a few days. Almost three decades later, an ally of Abraham's named Richard Oglesby got in touch with Abraham's kinsman, John Hanks, who was still living in the area. The two men found a fence that John and Abraham put up in 1830 and carried two rails away. The old wood was bedecked in flags and streamers and carried to a nearby convention in Decatur, where Illinois Republicans were choosing nominees for federal and state offices. At a predetermined moment, Hanks came into the gathering with an assistant, holding the rails aloft. A sign attached said they were two of 3,000 Lincoln helped make with Hanks, and apparently, no one else. The placard went on to declare Lincoln, quote, the rail candidate. Lincoln, showing honesty and political skill, told the audience that he could not confirm that he split these rails, but added, quote, he had mauled many and many better ones since he had grown to manhood. So was born the rail splitter. Illinois serves as the setting for the next 30 years of Lincoln's life. In a way, it's where history begins. Almost everything about his life before 1831 comes from oral tradition and memory. After 1831, we start getting documents in Lincoln's hand. They started a trickle, but become a flood by the later part of the decade. Legal documents, speeches, and letters to friends and allies. These connections will be critical at every point of Lincoln's life. The friends he makes as an independent young man will help him escape from poverty and will provide the platform he needs to launch his political career. Lincoln could not have succeeded without this help. And yet, as the rail incident shows, these men will help create the Lincoln mythology of a poor boy rising entirely through his own efforts. The first white settlers of Illinois remembered the wildflowers. They burst out of the emerald grasses of the prairie. Usher Linder, who came with his family to Illinois from Kentucky in 1835, wrote, It looked to me a vast wilderness of flowers, with a soil as rich and fertile as ever a crow flew over. It seemed to me as if the Lord had created it as a paradise for farmers. During the last Ice Age, glaciers covered most of what is today Illinois, crushing rocks and subsurface limestone. 
as they retreated, the glaciers built up a layer of thick, black soil, fertilized with that powderized limestone. The result was exceptionally fertile land. It was so productive that some people thought it was a moral hazard. The historian James E. Davis, in his book Frontier Illinois, quotes a man traveling through central Illinois in 1838, who said, quote, The first year a man worked here, he was astounded at his crops, and next year did not do so much, and by the third year was as lazy as an old settler. The Lincolns, like many settlers, were lured by the soil. And like many settlers, they had a hard time getting to Illinois. The party of 13 people, including five children, took weeks to cover the 225 miles from their home on Little Pigeon Creek. The historian Michael Burlingame notes the family passed by landmarks with discouraging names, like the Embarrass River, Dead Man's Grove, and Purgatory Bottom. The Lincolns had to pass over swollen rivers and sometimes cut paths out of the forest. The wooden wheels of their wagons broke down, requiring constant stops for repairs. Once, Lincoln had to whip his oxen team forward to break some ice on the river. When they got about halfway over, Lincoln heard a howl and saw that his dog had fallen in the water. Jesse DeBose, a friend who heard the story from Lincoln, said, quote, He stopped the oxen, pulled off his shoes, rolled up his pants, got out of the wagon, and jumped into the cold water, the sheets of ice hitting his shins. When he returned the dog to the wagon, the frightened animal crouched near Sarah Bush Lincoln. Once they were safely across, the dog had to be pulled out of the wagon. But once he was, DuBose said, quote, He cut up such antics as no dog ever did before. He ran round and round Abe and laid down at his feet, got up, and ran round and round again. Lincoln later told DuBose, quote, Well, Jesse, I guess I felt about as glad as the dog. Eventually, the Lincolns reached John Hanks' house in Macon County in central Illinois. Thomas settled land about 10 miles west of the city of Decatur, on the north side of the Sangamon River. Thomas, Abraham, and Dennis and John Hanks built a log cabin on the site. As Dennis remembered, quote, Lincoln helped cut the logs, and so did John Hanks. Abe hauled them, and I hewed them all. And next day, we raised the cabin. Abraham had turned 21 the previous February, and now legally owed nothing to his father. He may have stuck around out of loyalty, or perhaps because of limited opportunities in that first year in Illinois. As in Indiana, Lincoln was a manual laborer. He worked splitting logs and plowing the tough, hard soil of the prairie. Breaking the sod sometimes required special plows more than 14 feet long, with multiple teams of oxen. And Illinois had its dangers. Rains bred mosquitoes, which brought disease. The family all came down with malaria in the summer. Later in the year, the state experienced what those who lived through it remembered as the deep snow. Burlingame said it started with three feet of snow in December, followed by freezing rain, then more snow, then two weeks of sub-zero temperatures. Davis writes, quote, Some person simply vanished, 
while others' remains were found in the spring's melt. Lingering cold hurt corn. Game was scarce for years. And cotton fields in southern Illinois perished, never rebounding. The experience was so discouraging to Thomas Lincoln that the following spring, he and Sarah decided to return to Indiana. But after entering Coles County, near the border with the Hoosier State, relatives convinced Thomas and Sarah Lincoln to settle there. Abraham was not with them. In February 1831, a Kentuckian named Denton Offutt approached John Hanks, looking to find someone to take a load of goods down to New Orleans. Offutt was a short, heavy-drinking man and something of a windbag. Some called him rattle-brained. William Green, who worked for Offutt with Lincoln, called him, quote, a wild, reckless, careless man, a kind of wandering horse tamer. But Offutt's constant stream of talk either charmed or wore down John Hanks, who got Lincoln and John Johnston into the proposal. They spent a month building a flatboat, felling and cutting trees for the vessel. Hanks said it was about 80 feet long and 18 feet wide, with a strange rigging of a sail to a plank that inspired laughter in those who saw it. While floating down the Sangamon River, the crew got stuck on a mill dam at a village called New Salem. Lincoln, Hanks, and Johnston at first tried to pry the boat over the dam, but it wouldn't budge. Lincoln, with the village watching, bored holes in the boat and lightened it so it was able to float over the dam. It was a performance that impressed the crowd, including Offutt. While the vessel was loaded with pork and corn below New Salem, the crew had trouble getting hogs on the boat. Offutt got a bizarre notion that he could better direct the pigs if he sewed their eyes shut. Three decades later, Lincoln wrote, quote, No sooner thought of than decided, he put his hands, including A, at the job, which they completed, all but the driving. In their blind condition, they could not be driven out of the lot or field they were in. This expedient failing, they were tied and hauled on carts to the boats. John Hanks remembered Offit had Lincoln hold the pigs' heads because Abraham said, quote, I can't sew up their eyes. The flatboat got to New Orleans in May, where the men sold the cargo. When Lincoln returned to Illinois, Offit offered him a job in his general store in New Salem. This was the first real opportunity Lincoln had ever gotten for professional work, and he grabbed it. New Salem sat on a bluff over the Sangamon River, which runs through central Illinois. Seen from the sky, it would have looked like a question mark on its back. The main road came down the bluff near Offutt's store and a mill he rented. It then turned west, curving a bit to the northwest before resuming its westerly course to the end. The village was only two years old when Lincoln arrived in the summer of 1831, and served as a crossroads and marketplace for other villages in the area. Log cabins dominated New Salem. One man who visited the hamlet said they were, quote, not half so good as your old hog pens and not any larger. Lincoln did not own a home in the village, but boarded with people in and around the area. One was James Rutledge, a founder of New Salem, who had a warm and intelligent daughter, 
named Anne. We will speak more of Anne Rutledge in due course. Working for Offit, Lincoln waited on customers and helped farmers unload their grain for milling. James Short, a close friend of Lincoln's, said the young Abraham wore a blue cotton coat, ankle-high boots, and blue cotton and linen jeans, which, quote, failed to make the connection with either coat or socks, coming about three inches below the former and an inch or two above the latter. James Duncan, a doctor who knew Lincoln in New Salem, said, quote, The open, frank manner of Mr. Lincoln in his youthful days, coupled with a flow of humorous and great witticisms, always made him a welcome member of any group or society of intelligent men. He was not obtrusive in his manners, but his genial nature seemed to invite anyone to form his acquaintance. But this sunny young man could get violent. Once, when a customer was using profanity around a group of women, Lincoln threw him out of the store and onto the ground. People who knew Lincoln at this time spoke as much about his physical strength as they did his intellectual gifts. New Salem testimony is filled with tales of Lincoln throwing iron or getting into jumping contests where his long legs gave him an edge. Offit bragged that no one was stronger than his clerk. Without consulting Lincoln, he bet $5, 16 days wages for a manual laborer, that Lincoln could out-wrestle Jack Armstrong, the leader of the Clary's Grove Boys, a local gang. Lincoln agreed to the match and met Armstrong outside Offit's store. No one remembered exactly how it went. Some said Armstrong grabbed Lincoln by the leg and dropped him. Some said Lincoln grabbed Armstrong by the throat as Armstrong grabbed him by the leg. And one said Lincoln actually picked Armstrong up and swung him around, but couldn't beat him. Whatever happened, Lincoln handled himself in a manner that impressed Armstrong and the Clary's Grove boys. Lincoln became a close friend of Jack Armstrong and his wife Hannah, who would serve him cornbread and milk as Lincoln shared candy with her children. Lincoln usually finished his work for Offit by 3 p.m. As in Indiana, he spent long hours in mostly self-directed study. The first book he tackled in New Salem was a grammar written by a man named Samuel Kirkham. Kirkham started the work with some words of encouragement for the student. Quote, grammar is a leading branch of that learning which alone is capable of unfolding and maturing the mental powers and of elevating man to his proper rank in the scale of intellectual existence. He goes on to say, quote, as grammar opens the door to every department of learning, a knowledge of it is indispensable. And should you not aspire at distinction in the Republic of Letters, this knowledge cannot fail of being serviceable to you, even if you are destined to pass through the humblest walks of life. Neighbors in New Salem would recall Lincoln opening the book when there was a lull in Offutt's store, or reading while prone on a hill. Kirkham's book is not an easy read, but he laid out language in an orderly, systematic manner, starting with basic principles and then building upon them in a manner that could have only appealed to a logical mind like Lincoln's. Lincoln learned of the grammar from Mentor Graham, a local school teacher who recruited him to help with local elections. 
Graham was one of many friends the young man was making. He befriended another teacher named Jack Kelso, who he boarded with for a time. Kelso was best remembered by his neighbors as a fisherman, but he had memorized Shakespeare's plays and Robert Burns' poetry. One New Salem resident said Kelso, quote, "...loved Shakespeare and fishing above all other things." Abe loved Shakespeare, but not fishing. Still, Kelso would draw Abe. They used to sit on the bank of the river and quote Shakespeare and criticize one another. Lincoln made his most important connection with the local justice of the peace, a man named Bowling Green. Green was a North Carolina native who weighed something like 300 pounds. He spilled out of his pants, held up by one toe linen suspender over his shoulder, as Duncan remembered. Green might have known the Hanks family, and he was one of the local people with whom Lincoln lived. In his court, Green dealt mostly with petty matters like lost hogs. He seemed to take a detached, somewhat bemused attitude toward the low stakes of the proceedings. Lincoln, like many other people on the frontier, saw the court as something like entertainment, and he would show up to watch Green in action. The judge called on Lincoln for his thoughts on cases. He liked Lincoln's joking, which matched his own laconic wit. When Lincoln told an especially good joke, Duncan said, Green would, quote, produce a spasmodic shaking of the very fat sides of the old law functionary. The two of them sometimes seemed to form a kind of comedy act. During one trial, an attorney for a man named Peter Lukens called Lincoln as a character witness. He asked Abraham what he knew of his client's reputation for honesty. Well, said Lincoln, he is called Lying Pete Lukens. When the attorney asked Lincoln if he would believe Lukens under oath, Lincoln said Green had taken Lukens' testimony many times. So, the attorney asked Green if he believed Lukens. Green replied, quote, I never believe anything he says unless somebody else swears the same thing. Gradually, though, Green began to sense the intellect behind the jokes. He said there was good material in Lincoln. Abner Ellis, a neighbor, said, quote, Mr. Green used to say that Lincoln was a man after his own heart and I think myself he was. Mr. Lincoln used to say that he owed more to Mr. Green for his advancement than any other man. Lincoln frequented the Green's house, and some thought Lincoln saw him as a second father. Lincoln would soon need Green and all these friends. Offutt's store failed in early 1832, costing Lincoln his job. He tried to start a warehousing business and piloted a steamboat up the Sangamon to Springfield to get goods for storage. Had he succeeded, Lincoln might have headed toward a business career. But, in a constant problem for the river, the water levels started to drop, and the boat had to retreat. Then a few people approached Lincoln about running for the state legislature. Lincoln had joined a debating society over the wintertime, and a number of people were sufficiently impressed by his performance to picture him in a parliamentary setting. But he had some issues to deal with. First, Lincoln still looked like someone just out of the backwoods. Historian Michael Burlingame suggests that some people advanced Lincoln's candidacy 
because they thought it was funny. But the bigger issue for Lincoln was that the district was strong for President Andrew Jackson, and he wasn't. The parties of the 1830s are not the parties of today, and at the time they were still in Choet. The modern Democratic Party is completely different from the party that Andrew Jackson led in 1832. A Democratic voter would likely say that he was a Jackson man. Lincoln, as we'll see, was a follower of Henry Clay, the Kentucky politician who coined the term self-made man. Clay was Lincoln's hero and his ideal for how far a young man on the frontier could go. Clay and his followers would later join with other anti-Jackson men to form the Whig Party. There had been a time when Lincoln was a Jackson man. In Indiana, Elizabeth Crawford said Lincoln made up a song to celebrate Old Hickory's win over John Quincy Adams in 1828. Quote, Let old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind, and Jackson be our president and Adams left behind. His move toward Henry Clay was political and aspirational. Dennis Hanks thought Lincoln, quote, turned Whig from reading newspapers at Gentry's store in Indiana. Clay men also tended to be young professionals, something Lincoln very much desired to be. Finally, Lincoln objected to Jackson's economic policies. The conservative, state supremacy slaveholder vetoed a major road improvement bill in 1830, then went to war with the Second Bank of the United States. In his later speeches, Lincoln would talk about the need for capital to make improvements he felt critical to bringing prosperity. David Turnham, a neighbor of Lincoln's in Indiana, thought Jackson's attacks on the bank pushed Lincoln away from the Democrats. The Democrats' antebellum opposition to federally funded infrastructure, called internal improvements, likely locked him there. Lincoln always felt government was key to spreading prosperity. Transportation was the focus of Lincoln's communication to the people of Sangamo County, which announced his candidacy on March 9, 1832. He may have gotten some help putting it together, but it's a clear and cogent statement from someone whose total formal education might not have added up to a year. Lincoln started by unequivocally declaring his support for publicly funded transportation projects. He said, quote, that the poorest and most thinly populated countries would be greatly benefited by the opening of good roads and in the clearing of navigable streams within their limits is what no person would deny. He called for improvements to the Sangamon River while balancing that with opposition to the construction of a railroad, which no one in New Salem supported. Lincoln also wrote about education, and he had to be careful about what he said. Many Americans, Jackson men especially, were suspicious of public education, either because of higher taxes, government overreach, or fear over what the schools were teaching. James Davis writes about how public education divided northern and southern settlers of Illinois. He wrote, quote, most ordinary Southern settlers distrusted permanent institutions other than local churches and kept them at arm's length. Indifferent to and even scornful of formal education, 
Many Southern settlers, even elites, had minimal schooling, harbored pessimistic and fatalistic thoughts, and suspected complex, interdependent society and modernity. Writing to a mostly Democratic audience, Lincoln talked about the value of education in general terms, but waffled by saying he did not presume, quote, to dictate any plan or system respecting it. The piece really comes alive in its final paragraph. Lincoln wrote, quote, Every man is said to have his peculiar ambition. Whether it be true or not, I can say for one that I have no other so great as that of being truly esteemed of my fellow men by rendering myself worthy of their esteem. How far I shall succeed in gratifying this ambition is yet to be developed. I am young and unknown to many of you. I was born and have ever remained in the most humble walks of life. I have no wealthy or popular relations to recommend me. My case is thrown exclusively upon the independent voters of this county, and, if elected, they will have conferred a favor upon me, for which I shall be unremitting in my labors to compensate. But, if the good people in their wisdom shall see fit to keep me in the background, I have been too familiar with disappointments to be very much chagrined. This is about as close to a photograph of the young Lincoln as we'll ever get. A striver, an idealist, and someone, perhaps, who needed an audience. Before Lincoln could really start the campaign, the governor of Illinois called up the militia to fight a group known as the British Band of Sauk and Meskwaki, led by a man named Blackhawk. The conflict followed the lines of tragedy and dishonor that marked this nation's treatment of Native Americans. The Sauk had signed a treaty ceding lands in northern Illinois to the government in 1804. The government left the treaty unenforced until the late 1820s, when federal officials basically told the Sauk they were throwing them off their land. Most of the Sauk crossed the river into Iowa, where they starved. Black Hawk, leading a group of 800 to 1,000 people, many non-combatants, crossed back over in the hopes of returning to farmland in northern Illinois. When militiamen attacked his soldiers under a banner of truce, Black Hawk fought back. The Sauk achieved some early successes, but soon got pushed back with massacres. When it was all over, as many as 1,000 people were dead, the vast majority Native American. The fighting took place well north of New Salem. Lincoln buried bodies during the conflict, but saw no fighting, and in later years, he mocked his military service as, quote, a good many bloody battles with mosquitoes. But his time in the militia gives us a number of insights into his character. Militias elected their own officers. Lincoln found the Clary's Grove boys putting him up as a candidate for the job against Bill Kirkpatrick, a sawmill owner. Lincoln had hauled logs for Kirkpatrick and felt he cheated him out of his wages. As David Herbert Donald told it, quote, Both candidates stepped out in front, on the village green, and the men formed a line behind their favorite. To Lincoln's delight, two-thirds of the group fell in line behind him, and most of the others presently deserted Kirkpatrick and joined them. It was Lincoln's first election victory, and he relished it. 
Damn him, I've beat him, William Green remembered Lincoln saying. He used me badly. He never settled for my toil. Lincoln was not much of an officer. He told Herndon that upon his election, he gave his first order to the company and heard one member reply, Go to the devil, sir. He also didn't understand close order drill. When he couldn't remember how to get his men to pass through a gate, Lincoln said, quote, The company is dismissed for two minutes when it will fall in again on the other side of the gate. Once, Lincoln's officers snuck liquor into camp. The following morning, when ordered to fall in, they fell down dead drunk. Lincoln was ordered to carry a wooden sword for two days, a sign of humiliation. But Lincoln also showed coolness in the field and in dealing with his troops. William Green remembered that one night, an elderly Indian with a pass wandered into their camp. The militia threatened to lynch him, and Lincoln stepped between them. Men, this must not be done, he said. He must not be shot and killed by us. The soldiers were calling the man a damned spy, and at one point someone said, This is cowardly on your part, Lincoln. If any man thinks I am a coward, Lincoln said, stretching his full six-foot-four frame, let him test it. Lincoln, said one, you are larger and heavier than we are. To this, Lincoln replied, Choose your weapons. The elderly man passed safely through the camp. After his militia term ended, Lincoln re-enlisted as a private and served until July, just before the end of the war. If he never saw combat, his time as a captain helped his self-confidence. And he met a number of men who would become key allies, including John Todd Stewart, his first law partner. Those who served under him became his first political supporters, even though many were Democrats. But as David Herbert Donald noted, quote, Even after Lincoln's death, when the temptation to claim closeness to the martyred president was almost irresistible, very few of these men claimed Lincoln was their friend, and none confessed any degree of intimacy with him. Returning to New Salem, Lincoln had two weeks to campaign across Sangamon County, an area about the size of Rhode Island. There were 13 people running for a spot in the State House, and this wasn't a winner-take-all system. The top four vote-getters got elected. Lincoln competed in a field that included Stewart, the Whig with the best chance of success, and a number of better-known Democrats, including a circuit-riding preacher named Peter Cartwright, who played a major supporting role in Lincoln's ascent. By contrast, Lincoln was an unknown 23-year-old, tall, thin, and gawky, with a high-pitched voice, going before voters in what Abner Ellis described as, quote, a jean coat hammer style, short in the sleeves and bobtail, flax and tow linen pantaloons, and a straw hat. Lincoln's friend Henry Whitney said some voters, quote, could not seriously believe that so ill-dressed and fresh a spectacle as Lincoln could adequately represent them. Lincoln tried to turn this to his advantage. He was accompanied on the campaign by the Clary's Grove Boys, who acted as a hybrid rooting section and personal bodyguard at the different campaign events, where drinking was common and fisticuffs were frequent. Before Lincoln delivered a speech in Papstown, Lincoln's friend J. Rowan Herndon got into a fight with another man. Lincoln plunged into the fray 
and threw Herndon's assailant to the ground, then threatened to do the same to anyone else who got involved. As Herndon said, quote, All things went of quiet the balance of the day. But Lincoln was also showing his concise and unadorned method of speaking. Gentlemen and fellow citizens, he began one speech, I presume you all know who I am. I am humble Abraham Lincoln. My politics are short and sweet, like the old woman's dance. I am in favor of a national bank. I am in favor of the internal improvement system and a high protective tariff. These are my sentiments and political principles. If elected, I shall be thankful. If not, it will all be the same. But the young candidate can't cover all the ground he needs to, and he has other problems. The Sangamo Journal, the local Whig paper, somehow left him off their list of candidates, which probably dampened his vote totals. During one speech, Lincoln said he heard some of his opponents say, quote, It was a disgrace to the county of Sangamon to have such a looking man as I am stuck up for the legislature. Lincoln added, defiantly, quote, Let the shoe pinch who it may. When I have been a candidate before you some five or six times, and have been beaten every time, I will consider it a disgrace, and will be sure to never try it again. The election took place on August 6th. Three Democrats, including Cartwright, were elected. Stewart took the fourth slot. Lincoln finished a distant eighth, getting about 657 votes. He later said this was the only election where he was, quote, defeated on a direct vote of the people. But he showed promise. Even though New Salem was a Democratic town, Lincoln got an overwhelming number of votes there. Most sources say he received 277 out of 300 ballots cast, though some of Lincoln's neighbors later claimed he got all but three votes in the town. He was helped by a feud between Peter Cartwright and Samuel Hill, a merchant and leading Democrat who organized for Lincoln. Lincoln himself ended up getting more votes in the town than Henry Clay, headed for defeat against Andrew Jackson in the presidential election. Lincoln's first year in New Salem had been eventful. He'd been a clerk, a soldier, and a politician all before his 24th birthday. Coming to town with nothing but the promise of a job from a fast-talking schemer, he created a large network of friends, both rowdy and refined. He'd advanced his program of self-improvement, and he was attracting the interest of a number of people in town. The young man remained a rail splitter, not the rail splitter. But he was mixing the rigorous self-improvement of his Indiana years with a widening circle of admirers. In the coming years, he would need both. Next time, we'll watch Lincoln follow both these early threats as he struggles to enter the professional class and finds himself in the center of a business disaster. We'll also see his education expose him to religious and philosophical ideas that create challenges for his political career. 